Welcome, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Renegade Joint Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and real estate agent here at Renegade Realty Group with Keller Williams. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? Well, first of all, we're a local, normally, when we're not during coronavirus times, we're a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly, twice a month. This group's about networking and doing deals. I sent your grandma's Rhea, folks. No guru bullshit, no smell of stale coffee, been gay and or disappointment. You know exactly what I'm talking about. RDI is also this podcast where we continue the real estate conversation. And once we're done with lockdown and hopefully everybody's fine and we're back to normal, that's probably going to be a little while, but you could always go check us out online and meet us up in real life sometime in the future. Go to renegadedetroit.com, meetup.com forward slash investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. In the meantime, we are doing these meetings virtually. Please go to our Facebook and look at the events or go to our meetup and look at the events and see how to participate. Legal disclaimer. I know. I know. It's the way of the world, man. Don't blame me. In no way, shape, or form should anything that I say today be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decisions, you contact a lawyer and or other licensed professionals. Be an adult. Don't fucking sue me. All right, Renegades, time for your show quote of the day, since apparently I'm doing these way more now, right? Not just a week, but for your day. I try and pick a quote that sets a tone for the podcast as well. And this week, just going straight Jocko Willing, straight heat down the middle. Fight weak emotions with the power of logic. Fight the weakness of logic with the power of emotion. Jocko Willing. I think that's good advice right now. So everybody has uh, plenty of moral and political panic. All right. And here we are. We're going into part two. Part two, we are reading Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. All right. We did part one yesterday and now we're on part two. So if you want to go ahead and get, you know, maybe pause this, get yourself a drink, a little snacky snacky, pick up your book, get your highlighter. If you're driving, try and pay attention. But we're going to go ahead and start on page 52 at the bottom of page 52 for ready. All right, here we go. As I stood watching these young boat crew leaders, not yet SEALs, I knew they could not possibly grasp the responsibilities in store for them as future SEAL officers and combat leaders. Sure, Bud's training was tough. Hell Week was a kick in the nuts, but nobody was striving to kill them. Decisions and training here weren't life or death. Boat crew races did not lead to memorial services. There was no pressure that wrong decisions might spark an international incident, which could instantly make the evening news or front page newspaper headlines with negative repercussions on the entire war effort, just as it had been for us in Iraq. When these inexperienced, soon-to-be SEAL officer graduated from BUDS, I put them through our five-week-long junior officer training course, a program focused on their leadership development. I did my utmost to pass on to them everything I wish someone had taught me prior to leading in combat. In the final weeks of each course, we ran the Mark Lee and Mike Munsour Memorial Run, a five-mile uphill course that climbed to the top of the huge cliffs of Point Loma and finished at Fort Rosecrans National Cemetery, where Mark and Mike were, are buried, which actually not in the book. That's where I was stationed when I was in the Navy. On the USS Bremerton right there on Point Loma. Um, I did not go any five-mile run. I was up to no good back then, certainly not running. Back to the book. 
and that serene setting overlooking the Pacific Ocean most fitting for those two noble warriors, I gathered the class of junior officers around the headstones and told them about Mark and Mike. To me, it was deeply important to tell their story so that the legacies of Mark Lee and Mike Munsour could carry on. It also served as a stark realization to these future SEAL combat leaders of just how immense their responsibilities were and how deadly serious the burden of command. As they went forth to serve as officers and leaders in SEAL platoons and beyond, all responsibility and accountability rested on their shoulders. If their platoons underperformed, it was up to them to solve problems, overcome obstacles, and get the team working together to accomplish the mission. Ultimately, they must fully accept that they were truly, they truly are no bad teams, only bad leaders. Principle. About Face, the Odyssey of an American Warrior by Colonel David Hackworth, U.S. Army retired, influenced many frontline leaders in the SEAL teams and throughout the military. The lengthy memoir details Colonel Hackworth's military career, combat experiences in Korea and Vietnam, and his myriad of leadership lessons learned. Although a controversial figure later in life, Hackworth was an exceptional and highly respected battlefield leader. In the book, Hackworth relates the philosophy of the U.S. Army mentors who fought and defeated the Germans and Japanese in World War II. There are no bad units, only bad officers. This captures the essence of what extreme ownership is about. This is a difficult and humbling concept for any leader to accept, but it is an essential mindset to build a high-performance winning team. When leaders who epitomize extreme ownership drive their teams to achieve a higher standard of performance, they must recognize that when it comes to standards as a leader, it's not what you preach, it's what you tolerate. When setting expectations, no matter what has been said or written, if substandard performance is accepted and no one is held accountable, if there are no consequences, that poor performance becomes the new standard. Therefore, leaders must enforce standards. Consequences for failing need not be immediately severe, but leaders must ensure that tasks are repeated until the higher expected standard is achieved. Leaders must push the standards in a way that encourages and enables the team to utilize extreme ownership. The leader must pull the different elements within the team together to support one another, with all focused exclusively on how to best accomplish the mission. One lesson from the Bud's Boat Crew Leader example above is that most people, like Boat Crew 6, want to be part of a winning team. Yet they often don't know how or simply need motivation and encouragement. Teams need a forcing function to get the different members working together to accomplish the mission, and that is what leadership is all about. Once a culture of extreme ownership is built into the team at every level, the entire team performs well and performance continues to improve even when a strong leader is temporarily removed from the team. On the battlefield, preparation for potential casualties plays a critical role in a team's success if a key leader should go down. But life can throw any number of circumstances in the way of any business or team, like coronavirus, and every team must have junior leaders ready to step up and temporarily take on the roles and responsibilities of their immediate bosses to carry on the team's mission and get the job done if and when the need arises. Leaders should never be satisfied. They must always strive to improve, and they must build that mindset into the team. They must face the facts through a realistic, brutally honest assessment of themselves and their team's performance. Identifying weaknesses, good leaders seek to strengthen them and come up with a plan to overcome challenges. The best teams anywhere, like the SEALs teams, 
are constantly looking to improve, add capability, and push the standards higher. It starts with the individual and spreads to each of the team members until this becomes culture, the new standard. The recognition that there are no bad teams, only bad leaders, facilitates extreme ownership and enables leaders to build high-performance teams that dominate on any battlefield, literal or figurative. Application to business. I love this concept of extreme ownership, the CEO said. We could really use some uh, some at my company. We have a fairly solid team, but I have some key leaders that lack extreme ownership. I'd like to bring you in to work with us. The CEO and founder of a financial services company had observed a presentation I gave to a group of senior corporate executives. Intrigued by the concept of extreme ownership, he had approached me afterward to engage in conversation. Happy to help, I replied. To better understand the dynamics of his team and the particular challenges of his company and industry, I spent some time with the CEO in discussions via phone, visited his company offices, and met with his leadership team. I then conducted a leadership program for the company's department heads and key leaders. The CEO opened the program and introduced me to those in the room explaining why he had invested in this training. We aren't winning, the CEO stated plainly. A new product rollout the company had recently launched had not gone well, and the company's books were now in the red. Now the company stood at a pivotal junction. We need to take on these concepts like extreme ownership, with which Lath is going to talk to you about today, so that we can get back on track and win. The CEO then left the room all to me, his senior managers and department heads. After presenting some background on my combat experience and how the principle of extreme ownership was critical to the success of any team, I engaged the department heads and managers in discussion. How can you apply extreme ownership to your teams to succeed and help your company win, I asked. One of the company's key department leaders, the chief technology officer, who built the company's signature products, exhibited a defensive demeanor. He was not a fan of extreme ownership. I quickly recognized why. Since a new product line had been his baby, taking ownership of the disastrous rollout was humbling and difficult. The CTO was full of excuses for why his team had failed and for the resulting damage to the company's bottom line. He shamelessly blamed the failed new product rollout on a challenging market, an industry in flux, inexperienced personnel within his team, poor communication with the sales force, and lackluster customer service. He also blamed the company's senior executive team. The CTO refused to take ownership of mistakes or acknowledge that his team could perform better, though the CEO had made it clear they must all improve or the company might fold. Does that sound familiar right now? Laid off from your job? Didn't set as much money aside as you, you, you really should? Now you're panicking, lashing out at everybody. It's everybody else's fault. Why didn't the government do this? Why didn't my employer do this? Back to the book. I told the Bud's boat crew leader, Story to the group, how Boat Crew 6 turned their performance around under new leadership, and I outlined the concept that there are no bad teams, only bad leaders. During my own training and performance in BUDS as a Boat Crew leader, I told them I could remember many times when my Boat Crew struggled. It was easy to make excuses for our team's performance and why it wasn't what it should have been, but I learned that good leaders don't make excuses. Instead, they figure out a way to get it done and win. What was the difference between the two leaders in the boat crew leader example, asked one of the managers, in charge of a critical team within the company. When boat crew six was failing under their original leader, I answered, that leader didn't seem to think it was possible for them to perform any better, and he certainly didn't think they could win. 
This negative attitude infected his entire boat crew. As is common in teams that are struggling, the original leader of Boat Crew 6 almost certainly justified his team's poor performance with any number of excuses. In his mind, the other boat crews were outperforming his own only because those leaders had been lucky enough to be assigned better crews. His attitude reflected victimization. Life dealt him and his boat crew members a disadvantage, which justified poor performance. As a result, his attitude prevented his team from looking inwardly at themselves and where they could improve. Finally, the leader and each member of Boat Crew 6 focused not on the mission, but on themselves, their own exhaustion, misery, and individual pain and suffering. Though the instructors demanded that they do better, Boat Crew 6 had become comfortable with substandard performance. Working under poor leadership and an unending cycle of blame, the team constantly failed. No one took ownership, assumed responsibility, or adopted a winning attitude. What did the new boat crew leader do differently, asked another of the department heads. When the leader of Boat Crew 2 took charge of Boat Crew 6, he exhibited extreme ownership to the fullest, I explained. He faced the facts. He recognized and accepted that Boat Crew 6 performance was terrible, that they were losing and had to get better. He didn't blame anyone, nor did he make excuses to justify poor performance. He didn't wait for others to solve his Boat Crew's problems. His realistic assessment, acknowledgement of failure, and ownership of the problem were key to developing a plan to improve performance and ultimately win. Most important of all, he believed winning was possible. Got to believe in yourself, folks. You can do it. In a boat crew where winning seemed so far beyond reach, the belief that the team actually could improve and win was essential. It is essential to you. Back to the book. I continued. The new leader of Boat Crew 6 focused his team on the mission. Rather than tolerate their bickering and infighting, he pulled the team together and focused their collective efforts on the single specific goal of winning the race. He established a new and higher standard performance and accepted nothing less from the men in his boat crew. Why do you think Boat Crew 2, which had lost its strong leader, continued to perform well even with the far less capable leader from Boat Crew 6, asked another department leader. Extreme ownership, good leadership, is contagious, I answered. Boat Crew 2's original leader had instilled a culture of extreme ownership, of winning and how to win, in every individual. Boat Crew 2 had developed into a solid team of high-performing individuals. Each member demanded the highest performance from the others. Repetitive, exceptional performance became a habit. Each individual knew what they needed to do to win and did it. They no longer needed explicit direction from a leader. As a result, Boat Crew 2 continued to outperform virtually every other boat crew and vied with Boat Crew 6 for first place in nearly every race. I detailed how the original leader of Boat Crew 6 joined Boat Crew 2 thinking life would be easy for him. Instead, he had to seriously step up his game to keep up with such high-performance teams. For him, the greatest lesson of that day was learned. He witnessed a complete turnaround in the performance of his former team as he watched a new leader demonstrate that what seemed impossible was achievable through good leadership. Though he had failed to lead effectively to that point, the original leader of Boat Crew 6 learned and implemented that humbling lesson. Ultimately, he graduated from Bud's training and had a successful career in the SEAL teams. In summary, I told him, whether or not your team succeeds or fails is all on you. 
Extreme ownership is a concept to help you make the right decisions as a key leader so that you can win. The chief technology officer bristled. We are making the right decisions, he said. He was serious. Surprised at his statement, I responded, You've all admitted that as a company you aren't winning. We may not be winning, said the CTO resolutely, but we're making the right decisions. If you aren't winning, I responded, then you aren't making the right decisions. Not in the book. So fucking obvious, right? Just so obvious. If your life's on fire, you're making shitty decisions. Back to the book. The CTO was so sure he was right, so content to make excuses and shift blame for his own mistakes and failures that he made ludicrous claims to avoid taking any ownership or responsibility. Just like the original boat crew leader in Boat Crew Sex, this CTO exhibited the opposite of extreme ownership. He took no meaningful action to improve his performance or push his team to improve. Worse, he refused to admit that his own performance was subpar and that he and his team could do better. His CEO had stated plainly that the company's performance must improve substantially. But the CTO was stuck in a cycle of blaming others and refused to take ownership or responsibility. He had become what a good friend from my own buds class and SEAL qualification training dubbed the tortured genius. By this, he did not mean the artist or musician who suffers from mental health issues, but in the context of ownership. No matter how obvious his or her failing or how valid the criticism, a tortured genius in this sense accepts zero responsibility for mistakes, makes excuses, and blames everyone else for their failings and those of their team. In their mind, the rest of the world just can't see or appreciate the genius in what they are doing. An individual with a tortured mindset uh, an individual with a tortured genius mindset can have catastrophic impact on a team's performance. Not in a book. I don't tolerate it one second. I don't. I immediately kind of like when you call somebody's bluff, I call it immediately. And you should do the same to other people and then cut them out of your life. If they do not listen after a period of time, you cannot keep these people around. They are fucking cancerous. Back to the book. After lengthy discussion with the department heads and managers, many of them came to understand and appreciate extreme ownership, but not the CTO. After the workshop concluded, I met with the company's CEO to debrief. How did things go, he asked. The workshop went well. Most of your department heads and key leaders took on board this concept of extreme ownership, I replied. You have one major issue, though. Let me guess, replied the CEO, my chief technology officer. Affirmative, I responded. He resisted the concept of extreme ownership at every turn. I had seen this before, both in the SEAL teams and with other client companies. In any group, there was always a small number of people who wanted to shirk responsibility. But this CTO was a particularly serious case. Your CTO might be one of the worst tortured geniuses I have seen, I said. The CEO acknowledged that his CTO was a problem that he was difficult to work with, and other department leaders in the company had major issues with him. But the CEO felt that because the CTO's experience level and knowledge were critical to the company, he couldn't possibly fire him. It also seemed the CTO felt he was above reproach. I can't tell you to fire anybody, I responded. Those are decisions only you can make. But what I can tell you is this. When it comes to performance standards, it's not what you preach, it's what you tolerate. You have to drive your CTO to exercise extreme ownership, to acknowledge mistakes, stop blaming others, and lead his team to success. 
If you allow the status quo to persist, you can't expect to improve performance and you can't expect to win. A week later, I followed up with a phone call to the CEO to see how his team was doing. Some folks are really embracing this concept of extreme ownership, he said enthusiastically. But the chief technology officer continues to be a problem. The CEO related how, upon my departure, the CTO had barged into his office and warned that the concept of extreme ownership had negative repercussions. This was laughable. There are no negative repercussions to extreme ownership, I said. There are only two types of leaders, effective and ineffective. Effective leaders that lead successful, high-performance teams exhibit extreme ownership. Anything else is simply ineffective. Anything else is bad leadership. The CTO's perform, uh, performance and the performance of his team illustrated this in Technicolor. His abrasiveness affected his entire team and other departments in the company that had difficulty working with him. The CEO understood his company wasn't winning, and he cared too much about the company he built and the livelihood of his other employees to allow the company to fail. He must do better. He let the CTO go. A new CTO came on board with a different attitude, a mindset of extreme ownership. With this change in the leadership of the company's technology team, other departments began to work together with success, and that teamwork played a key role as the company rebounded. Once failing and struggling to survive, the company was now on a path toward profitability and growth. Their success illustrated once again that leadership is the most important thing on any battlefield. It is the single greatest factor in whether a team succeeds or fails. A leader must find a way to become effective and drive high performance within his or her team in order to win. Whether in SEAL training, in combat on distant fields, in business, or in life, there are no bad teams, only bad leaders. Chapter 3. Believe. Shark Base, Camp Ramadi, Iraq, questioning the mission. This makes no sense, no sense at all, I thought, as I read through the mission statement from Higher Command. We were to execute missions by, with, and through Iraqi security forces. Unlike my first deployment to Iraq, where SEALs worked almost exclusively with our own SEAL team and other U.S. or NATO Special Operations Unit, my SEAL task unit had now been directed to work with conventional forces. But not just any conventional forces, Iraqi conventional forces. The SEALs and Task Unit Bruiser were like a professional sports team, exceptionally well-trained to perform at the highest level. We knew each other so well that we could anticipate each other's thoughts and moves. We could recognize each other's silhouettes on patrol in the darkness. This was the result of years of training, not only in BUDS, the basic SEAL training course from which we had all graduated, but in the year-long training cycle that the entire Task Unit had gone through together. That workup consisted of training and practicing as a team in desert, urban, and maritime environments in vehicles, boats, planes, helicopters, and on foot. We had fired thousands of rounds through our vast arsenal of weapons until we could do so with the highest degree of accuracy while under substantial pressure. We had trained for hundreds of hours, iteration after iteration, drill after drill, until we could operate not just as a group of individuals, but as a team, a synchronized machine maneuvering with precision and efficiency through the challenges of chaotic battlefields. As SEALs, we kept ourselves in peak physical condition so we could execute tough missions and meet the extreme physical demands of combat. We did hundreds of pull-ups and push-ups, ran for miles, lifted heavy weights, swam long distances in the open ocean, all to prepare for combat. 
During our training cycle in the precious few hours we didn't have a scheduled training evolution, we were in the gym physically pushing ourselves through punishing high-intensity workouts. If there was no gym at our training location, we'd be on the road for a hard run and the parking lot dragging or flipping heavy tires or on the mats and fierce grappling and jujitsu contests, whatever we could do to stay strong and conditioned. Each man was expected to maintain that high level of physical conditioning so that he could pull his weight and never falter on an operation. We had to be ready to carry a wounded comrade in full heavy combat gear to safety across rugged terrain. As a critical part of our culture, we constantly challenge each other to tests of physical strength. We also had some of the best gear in the world, encrypted radios, night vision goggles, infrared lasers, lights and markers, uniform Kevlar vests and helmets. In the hands of operators who knew how to use this gear, the tactical advantage over the enemy was huge. Now, I was being told that Task Unit Bruiser, my friends, my brothers, these highly trained and motivated men, would have to fight alongside conventional Iraqi army soldiers, arguably some of the worst combat troops in the world. Most Iraqi soldiers were poor, uneducated, untrained, undernourished, and unmotivated. With dire economic conditions across Iraq, many simply joined for a paycheck. When the going got tough, they often deserted, as we later witnessed. All of the soldiers had, to their credit, risked their lives to be part of the Iraqi army. Often their families were targeted by terrorists, their lives threatened while the soldier deployed to fight in, the distant, in a distant Iraqi city. Of course, there were some better soldiers among them, but the competent and capable Iraqi soldier was the rare exception, not the rule. The vast majority of soldiers in the Iraqi army as fighting men were far below the standard expected of any military and certainly far below what was needed to take on and defeat Iraq's growing insurgency. Back in 2003, the U.S.-led coalition provisional authority disbanded Saddam Hussein's Iraqi army completely. It, ha it then had to be rebuilt from the ground up. The new Iraqi army's training was disorganized, ad hoc, and scattered at best. Some Iraqi soldiers had almost no training. Officers often bribed or bought their way into their rank. Young enlisted Iraqi soldiers' primary goal was survival, not victory. Physically, they were weak. Most Iraqi soldiers were incapable of even doing a few push-ups or jumping jacks. Tactically, they were dangerous and unsound, regularly violating basic safety procedures. Worse, some of the Iraqi soldiers had questionable loyalty to the coalition and to the new government of Iraq. Some Sunni soldiers remained loyal to Saddam. But most Iraqi soldiers were Shiites, and many of these saw... Uh, Muqtada al-Sadir, the fiery cleric hostile to Americans and closely allied with Iran as a national hero. Every so often, reports surfaced of Iraqi soldiers who turned their weapons on their U.S. Army or Marine Corps advisors. With that knowledge, how could trust be built? In addition to poor training, the Iraqi soldiers were barely equipped for a camping trip, much less combat operations. Some wore sneakers or sandals. Their uniforms were a mix-match collection of military clothing and American, Soviet, or Middle Eastern camouflage. The variety of clothing made it hard to distinguish friend from foe, especially in an environment where the enemy also wore paramilitary uniforms and gear. Iraqi soldiers' web gear and load-bearing equipment consisted of tattered canvas Soviet-era chest rigs with AK-47 magazine pouches that often fell apart. 
The weapons they carried were a mix of rifles confiscated from insurgents, many of them poorly made Iraqi or Chinese copies of the AK-47. Most were in poor shape and far below the standards of the original Russian design. It was not uncommon to find the weapons rusted to the point that the sights could not be adjusted. Their technology generally stopped at their weapon. They had no night vision goggles, no lasers, no radios. In fact, very few even had a simple flashlight. Their body armor was ancient with questionable effectiveness. Task Unit Bruiser was charged with getting our Iraqi soldiers equipped, organized, and most important, trained and ready to fight the insurgents who seemed to be increasingly effective against U.S. military forces. In less hostile areas of Iraq, this meant building training programs on secure bases and running Iraqi soldiers through basic soldiering skills and, finally, some advanced infantry tactics before taking them out on patrol in enemy territory. But this was Ramadi, the epicenter of the insurgency and the decisive battle for the Anbar province. There was fighting to be done, outposts to protect, and enemy fighters to capture and kill. To pull Iraqi soldiers from the battlefield for training beyond a day or two was simply impossible. Our mission as SEAL was was to go into hostile territory with these ragtag Iraqi soldiers and fight against hardcore insurgent Mujahideen fighters determined to kill as many as they could. Now, SEALs are known to run to the sound of guns. But running to the sound of guns is much easier when a SEAL is surrounded by other SEALs. When we know the man covering our six is someone who has been through the same training, has the same gear, and speaks the same language. Someone we trust. For a SEAL to put his life in the hands of someone he doesn't know, a person he has barely worked with, who is not well-trained, undisciplined, speaks a different language, and whose trustworthiness is doubtful, is asking a hell of a lot. In the SEALs teams, the bond of our brotherhood is our strongest weapon. If you take that away from us, we lose our most important quality as a team. When our SEALs and Task Unit Bruiser learned that they would be allowed to conduct combat operations only alongside Iraqi soldiers, they were livid and completely against the idea. We knew that the dangers in Ramadi from the enemy were already extremely high. There was no need to increase the risk to our force, yet that is exactly what we were being directed to do. Even my initial reaction was, hell no. It just wasn't worth the risk. Why would we go into combat without every possible advantage, much less a self-inflicted distinct disadvantage? I didn't believe that this mission made sense. I didn't believe it was smart. I didn't believe it would be successful. To imagine a firefight alongside Iraqi soldiers with such inferior training and questionable loyalty seemed outrageous, perhaps even suicidal. But as Task Unit Bruiser's commander, I knew my actions and mindset carried great weight among my troops. These were my orders, and for me to lead, I had to believe. So I kept my doubts to myself, and I asked a simple question. Why? Why would the U.S. military leadership on the ground and in Iraq and back in America, from Baghdad to the Pentagon to the White House, task Navy SEALs, other special operations, and U.S. Army and Marine Corps units with such a high-risk mission? I had seen how difficult combat could be with the best people by my side. Why make it harder? I knew I had to adjust my perspective to mentally step back from the immediate fight just outside the wire and think about this question from a strategic level, as if I were one of those generals in Baghdad or back at the Pentagon. Sure, they were far from the front lines, but certainly they had the same goal we did, to win. That led to another question. What was winning? 
It certainly wasn't winning in the traditional military sense of the word. There would be no surrender from this enemy we fought against. There would be no peace treaty signed. Winning here meant only that Iraq would become a relatively secure and stable country. So I asked myself, how can we prepare the Iraqi soldiers to handle security in their own country? They need to start somewhere. If there wasn't time to train Iraqi soldiers off the battlefield in a secure environment on base, then they would have to learn by doing through on-the-job training. If the Iraqis never reached a level of skill at which they could defend their country from terrorist insurgents, who would defend it? The answer was all too clear. Us, the U.S. military. We would be stuck here securing their country for them for generations. The disparity between the capability of the poorly trained, ill-equipped, and unmotivated Iraqi soldiers and that of determined, well-equipped, and highly effective insurgent fighters they were up against was gigantic. Virtually every time an American outpost in Ramadi was handed over to the control of Iraqi soldiers, insurgents attacked and overran their position, killing dozens of Iraqi troops and sometimes the U.S. Marine or Army advisors assigned to them. The Iraqi soldiers were no match for the insurgents. It would take generations of training to get the Iraqi soldier to a level needed to overcome and defeat such an aggressive enemy. Even then, such lackluster soldiers would likely never be capable of fighting and defeating a serious adversary. For those of us on the front lines of this conflict, it was clear that there were many senior U.S. military officers who, far removed from direct interaction with Iraqi soldiers, did not understand the Iraqi army's true lack of capability. They were simply terrible, and no amount of training would make them excellent soldiers. But perhaps we could make them good enough. As I thought about that, I realized that there was something that we, Task Unit Bruiser, and other U.S. and uh, coalition forces could do. These Iraqi troops, or Jundis as they called themselves in Arabic, may never be good enough to take on a well-equipped and determined enemy, but they could be good enough to handle a less substantial enemy. We could ensure the current enemy fit into the category by reducing the insurgents' ability to wage war. In addition to building the Iraqi army's capability through training and combat advising on the battlefield, we, our SEALs and U.S. forces, would have to crush the insurgency and lower its capability to a point where Iraqi soldiers and police could at least have a chance to maintain a relative peace by themselves, a chance to win. In order to do that, our task unit bruiser SEAL needed to get outside the wire, onto the battlefield, and inflict serious damage on insurgent fighters. But we couldn't operate unless our combat missions received approval through our chain of command. The SEAL task unit that had been in Ramadi for months prior to our arrival had told us they planned a number of combat missions that consisted of only SEALs without Iraqi soldiers. Almost all those operations had been denied approval. In order to receive that approval, I knew we must take Iraqi soldiers with us on every operation. They were our ticket to leave the base push into enemy territory, and unleash fury upon the insurgents. With that, I understood and I believed. Now, I had to ensure that my troops understood and believed. I called for a meeting and pulled all the SEAL operators from Task Unit Bruiser together into the briefing room. All right, fellas, I said, you heard the rumors. Every operation we conduct will include Iraqi soldiers. They were mutterings of obscenities and loud exhales of disgust. I repeated, Every mission we undertake, we will fight alongside Jundis. The room cut loose again, this time with louder disagreement and curses. The consensus from our SEALs, the frontline troops who would execute our missions, was clear. This is garbage. 
I cut the not-so-subtle protest short. I understand the battlefield here in Ramadi is dangerous. It's difficult. We make it even harder by forcing us to fight. Why make it even harder than forcing us to fight alongside Iraqi soldiers? Damn right, not much of the room in the agreement. Well, let me ask you something. If the Iraqi military can't get to a point where they can handle security in their own country, who is going to do it? The room fell silent. I drove the point home by restating the question. I say again, if the Iraqi military can't handle the security in this country, who's going to do it? I had their attention and they knew the answer. But to ensure everyone clearly understood the strategic importance of why we were being directed to do this, I made it perfectly clear. If Iraqi soldiers can't do it, there's only one group that will, us. If we don't get these guys up to speed, we have this mission next year and the year after and the year after. The U.S. military will be stuck here for generations. It will be up to our sons and our sons' sons to secure Iraq. I could see that, although there were still resistance to the idea of working with Iraqi soldiers, they were beginning to see the mission from a strategic perspective. I continued, like you, I understand that no matter how much we train them, the Iraqi army will never come close to achieving the standards we set for ourselves. But we will help them get better, and that is something we can do to help them. We will close with and destroy the enemy on the streets of Ramadi to reduce the insurgents' military capability and lower the level of violence. When the enemy is beaten, then the Iraqi army can take over security duties for themselves. I saw some heads not in agreement. But to do that, I said, we have to get each mission, each operation approved. And if we want our missions approved, we must have Iraqi soldiers with us on every operation. Does anyone not understand this? The room was quiet. Everyone understood. They didn't have to jump for joy at the thought of fighting alongside Iraqi soldiers on a dangerous battlefield, but they did have to understand why they were doing it so they could believe in the mission. Afterward, I spoke to my key leaders in greater detail about why this mission was important. Unlike the previous SEAL task unit, I told my officers and chiefs they would not submit any concept of operations, a document that lays out the basic idea of an operation for approval by higher headquarters without Iraqi soldiers as part of our force. What about all the unilateral operations you did in your last deployment, Leif asked me. Didn't they make a difference? The other platoon commander and both platoon chiefs waited for my response. Yeah, we did a whole lot of unilateral DAs in Iraq two years ago, I answered. And since that time, coalition forces across Iraq have continued to do them. But here are the facts. In the last two years, enemy attacks are up 300%. 300%. This place is on a downward spiral. We got to do something different if we want to win. Every one of your operations will have Iraqi soldiers, I told him. These Iraqi soldiers are our means to do something different, our ticket to operate. We will get them up to speed. We will prepare them the best we can. We will fight alongside them. And we will crush the enemy until even the Iraqi army will be able to fight them on their own. Any other questions? There were no more questions. The most important question had been answered. Why? Once I analyzed the mission and understood for myself that critical piece of information, I could then believe in the mission. If I didn't believe in it, there was no way I could possibly convince the SEALs in my task unit to believe in it. If I expressed doubts or openly questioned the wisdom of this plan in front of the troops, their derision toward the mission would increase exponentially. They would never believe in it. As a result, they would never commit to it, and it would fail. But once I understood and believed 
I then passed that understanding and belief on clearly and succinctly to my troops so they could believe it in themselves. When they understood why, they would commit to the mission, persevere through the inevitable challenges in store, and accomplish the task set before us. Most of the operators accepted my explanation. Not not every member of Task Unit Bruiser was convinced immediately. We had to reinforce the importance of combat advising Iraqi soldiers continuously. Through the course, you hear that continuously? Like, you don't just sit down and tell somebody and change their mind? Yeah. That's, that's a little good bit of advice there. You know, it's like a campaign. Back to the book. Through the course of the deployment, our SEALs conducted every major operation with Iraqi soldiers. Often, the Iraqi soldiers did things that were stupid and dangerous. On one combat operation, an Iraqi soldier accidentally squeezed the trigger of his AK-47 rifle and blasted a dozen rounds of fully automatic rifle fire into the floor next to the SEAL operator standing near him. The bullets missed some of our SEALs by inches. On another operation, Lath and his SEAL combat advisors had to rip the rifles out of the hands of Iraqi soldiers who, under fire, ran from the enemy contact while shooting their AK-47s backwards over their heads with other SEALs and Iraqi soldiers downrange from them. Incredibly foolish. Another time, Iraqi soldiers on patrol with our SEALs were engaged by enemy fighters. An Iraqi soldier was hit, and his comrades abandoned him in the street and ran for cover. Two SEALs had to run through a hailstorm of enemy fire across an open street, what we called a Medal of Honor run, to retrieve the wounded Iraqi soldier and drag him to cover while bullets impacted all around him. The Iraqi soldiers frustrated the hell out of our SEALs who trained and fought alongside them, but they also proved useful in ways we hadn't anticipated. A SEAL breacher might use a sledgehammer and explosive charge to open a gate, an effective method, though extremely loud, which let everyone in the neighborhood know we were there. Our Iraqi soldiers knew how the doors and gates were secured and would quietly pop them open by hand with little effort. They they also could tell the bad guys from the good. To our American eyes, when unarmed enemy fighters were hiding among the civilian populace, we couldn't tell the difference. But our Iraqi soldiers could discern dress, mannerisms, and Arabic accents that were different from that of the local populace. Their local and cultural knowledge was advantageous in helping us better understand and identify the enemy. Over the next six months, we took Iraqi soldiers right into the thick of some of the biggest battles for the city of Aramadi. Several of them were killed in action. Others were wounded. Despite the grumblings from Task Unit Bruiser, a certain base-level camaraderie formed between our SEALs and their Iraqi counterparts through the blood, sweat, and tears of difficult combat operations. Through the success of the U.S. Army 1st Armored Division Ready 1st Brigade Combat Team's seize, clear, hold, build strategy, enemy fighters were forced out of their former safe havens within Ramadi. Because we included Iraqi soldiers with us on every operation, our chain of command approved all of our plans to push deep into dangerous enemy territory in support of this strategy. That enabled us to hammer enemy fighters with deadly effect, making those areas a little safer for the U.S. soldiers and Marines that built the perimeter combat outposts and lived and patrolled out of them, forcing the insurgents out of their former strongholds. As a result, the local people ceased passive support of the insurgents and instead switched sides to support U.S. and Iraqi forces. Over time, the level of violence decreased dramatically, as did the insurgents' military capability. By the end of our deployment, the area was secure enough to enable our Iraqi army units 
to begin operations under their own command and control, patrolling into the city, engaging the enemy, and capturing or killing insurgents. That portion of our mission was a success by any measure. Principle. In order to convince and inspire others to follow and accomplish a mission, a leader must be a true believer in the mission. Even when others doubt and question the amount of risk, asking, is it worth it, the leader must believe in the greater cause. If a leader does not believe, he or she will not take the risk required to overcome the inevitable challenges necessary to win, and will, they will not be able to convince others, especially the frontline troops who must execute the mission, to do so. Leaders must always operate with the understanding that they are part of something greater than themselves and their own personal interests. They must impart this understanding to their teams down to the tactical level operators on the ground. Far more important than training and equipment, a resolute belief in the mission is a critical for any team or organization to win and achieve big results. In many cases, the leader must align his thoughts and vision to that of the mission. Once a leader believes in the mission, that belief shines through to those below and above the chain of command. Actions and words reflect belief with a clear confidence and self-assuredness. That is not possible when belief is in doubt. The challenge comes when the alignment isn't explicitly clear. When a leader's confidence breaks, those who are supposed to follow him or her see this and begin to question their own belief in the mission. Every leader must be able to detach from the immediate tactical mission and understand how it fits into strategic goals. When leaders receive an order that they themselves question and do not understand, they must ask the question, why? Why are we being asked to do this? Those leaders must take a step back, deconstruct the situation, analyze the strategic picture, and then come to a conclusion. If they cannot determine a satisfactory answer themselves, they must ask questions up the chain of command until they understand why. If frontline leaders and troops understand why, they can move forward fully believing in what they are doing. It is likewise incumbent on senior leaders to take the time to explain and answer the questions of their junior leaders so that they too can understand why and believe. Whether in the ranks of military units or companies and corporations, the frontline troops never have as clear an understanding of the strategic principle or picture as senior leaders might anticipate. It is critical that those senior leaders impart a general understanding of that strategic knowledge, the why, to their troops. In any organization, goals must always be in alignment. If goals aren't aligned at some level, this issue must be addressed and rectified. In business, just as in the military, no senior executive team would knowingly choose a course of action or issue order that would purposely result in failure. But a subordinate may not understand a certain strategy and thus not believe in it. Junior leaders must ask questions and also provide feedback up the chain so that senior leaders can fully understand the ramifications of how strategic plans affect execution on the ground. Belief in the mission ties to the fourth law of combat, decentralized command. The leader must explain not just what to do, but why. It is the responsibility of subordinate leader to reach out and ask if they do not understand. Only when leaders at all levels understand and believe in the mission can they pass that understanding and belief to their teams so they can persevere through challenges, execute, and win. Application to business. This new compensation plan is terrible, said one of the mid-level managers. It will drive our best salespeople away. The rest of the class agreed. 
Toward the end of the short leadership development program for the company's mid-level managers, my discussions with the class had revealed a major issue that created stress and fragmentation among the ranks of the company. Corporate leadership had recently announced a new compensation structure for their sales force. The new plan substantially reduced compensation, especially for low-producing salespeople. What's the issue, I asked the group? It's hard enough to keep salespeople here. This doesn't help, one manager responded. They don't get how hard it is in this market, said another, referring to corporate senior leadership. This new compensation plan will push people to our competitors. Some of my folks have already heard rumors about it. They don't like it at all, and I can't convince them otherwise. I don't believe in it myself. I asked them all a simple question. Why? Why what? One of the managers responded. Why is your leadership making this change, I asked. Hell if I know, one manager stated emphatically, which brought laughs from the group. I smile and nodded. Then I asked again, okay, but why do you think they are implementing this plan? Do you think they want to push your best salespeople out the door? Do they want those salespeople to go to your competitors? Do you think they actually want the company to lose money and fail? The room was quiet. The managers, most of whom respected their bosses and maintained good relationship with the company's corporate leadership, knew their leaders were smart, experienced, and committed to the success of the company. The problem was that nobody could understand why this new plan had been implemented. Has anybody asked? I questioned them. The room fell silent. Finally, the class clown blurted out, I'm not asking. I like my job. Laughter erupted from the room. I smiled and let, and let them settle down. Understandable, I replied. So the CEO, is she unreasonable? Would she actually fire someone for asking the question? A group of managers mumbled, no. What is it then? I asked. Finally, one of the more senior managers spoke up with a serious answer. I'd feel pretty stupid asking. Our CEO is smart and has a lot of experience. She gets this business. Okay, I shot back. So you're all just scared to look stupid? Heads nodded in a universal yes. I nodded as well, now more fully understanding the issue. No one wants to look stupid, especially in front of the boss. Let me ask you this, I continued. When you can't explain the reason behind this new compensation plan to your sales force, how does that make you look? Stupid and scared, the class responded. Exactly, I shot back in jest, but I knew a simple, easy way to solve the problem had been uncovered. That afternoon, I swung by the CEO's office. She was meeting with the company's president of sales. How's the workshop going, the CEO inquired. It's going pretty well. You have a solid crew of managers. Absolutely, they're a great group, replied the CEO. How was your relationship with them, I asked. Oh, I think it's very strong with most of them. Some of the newer ones I don't know all that well yet, but as a whole, I have a good relationship with our managers, the CEO answered. Do they ever confront you on anything or ask questions, I asked. The CEO thought for a few seconds. Not really, she acknowledged. I think they get the business, and I think they know what they're trying to do, so there really isn't much that they would need to confront me on. I've been in this game a long time. I wouldn't be here today if I didn't know what I was doing. They know that, and I think they respect that. Experience counts for a lot in this business. But I think if they had an issue, they would certainly bring it up to me. A common misperception among military leaders or corporate senior executives, this was an example of a boss who didn't fully comprehend the weight of her position. In her mind, she was fairly laid back, open to questions, comments, and suggestions from people. She talked about maintaining an open-door policy, but in the minds of her sales manager, she was still the boss, experienced, smart, and, most important, powerful. That position demanded a high level of reverence, so high, in fact, that for an employee to question her ideas seemed disrespectful. 
None of them were comfortable questioning her, even though none of the mid-level managers actually worried about losing their jobs because they asked a question. But they they were certainly worried about looking bad in front of the boss. I'm not sure they're as comfortable confronting you or opening up to you as you think, I stated bluntly. Really, the CEO asked with a slightly puzzled face. Let me give you an example of what came up today, I replied. The new sales compensation plan. What about it? Don't they like it? The CEO asked with a surprise. It's not that they don't like it. I don't think they get it. Don't get it. The plan isn't really that complex. In fact, it's simple, said the CEO, preparing to give me a quick explanation. It's not that they don't get what the plan is. You're right. It is simple. It reduces overall compensation for sales staff, especially for the low producers. Exactly. What's the issue with that? The CEO said. She was right. Even I, without experience in this particular field, had no trouble understanding the basic concept of the new compensation plan. The issue is not that they don't understand the plan, but that they don't understand why the plan is being implemented. They don't believe in it. They think this plan will drive away good salespeople who will look for and possibly find better compensation plans at your competitors, I explained. The CEO now got a little defensive. Then they clearly don't understand what I'm doing with the business, she stated. When we cut compensation, especially on the low-producing salespeople, that savings reduces cost. When I reduce costs for salespeople, it reduces our overhead. With overhead reduced, I can lower the price of our products. That will allow our bigger producers to bring in even more business. Sure, the new compensation plan is punitive toward our bottom people, but those bottom people really don't move the needle in our business. If some of them leave, it wouldn't impact our business. In fact, if we allow some of our better producers to expand into those accounts and increase sales. So there's an opportunity for our sales force to do even better. That makes a lot of sense, I replied. It absolutely does, said the CEO. She explained how she had made this move before in a tough market. It almost always helps. It might reduce the overall size of our sales force, but it will increase our volume in the long run. A smaller, more effective sales force also reduces overhead, lower healthcare costs, fewer desks, and fewer computers to buy greater efficiency. It's a win-win. That sounds brilliant. There's only one problem with it, I said. What's that? The CEO said incredulously. Your mid-level managers don't understand those points. They don't understand why. And so they don't believe in the strategy. If they don't believe, neither will your sales force. And if this plan rolls out and those executing it don't believe in it, your plan is far more likely to fail. So what can I make them do to believe, asked the CEO. It's easy, I explained. Just tell them why. The CEO finally understood what she needed to do. For my training with the mid-level managers the next day, the CEO made an appearance and kicked things off with a short presentation. Good morning, everyone, she began. Jocko pointed out to me that y'all had some issues with the new compensation plan. Won't do, what don't you like? <laughs> that's, that's pretty hardcore. I like this lady. She's fucking went right at it, right? Back to the book. After a few moments of silence, one of the more senior managers finally mustered the courage to speak up. Cutting into our sales team take-home pay hurts, said the manager. It may drive some of them elsewhere, and that could hurt us in the long run. The CEO smiled. She explained the details of the strategy behind the plan, the increased volume, the reduced overhead, the greater capture of existing counts when handled by higher-producing salespeople. The managers quickly saw the connection and understood the benefits of the plan. Does anybody have any questions? The CEO finished. No one spoke up. Seriously, does anyone have any questions? Don't be afraid to ask. I obviously didn't make this clear to you, and unfortunately, none of you asked, she jabbed. No, I think we got it now, one of the the managers replied. 
Do you think you you can explain it to your sales force in a manner they will understand? Asked the CEO. I do. A manager answered, but I still think some of the low producers will be upset. I'm sure some of them will be, the CEO replied. As I said, this is part of the strategy here. The ones I want you to focus on here are the big producers and those you think have the potential to become big producers. I have done this before. We will get results. Anyone else have anything? The room, now loosened up by the straight shooting conversation with the CEO, relaxed and broke into some small talk before the CEO went on her way. The class continued. What do you think? I asked the class. That is exactly what we needed, said one manager. Now I get it, remarked another. I wish we had known that all along, a third manager stated. Let me ask you another question. Who is to blame for the CEO not explaining this to you in more detail, I asked. The managers in the room remained silent. They knew the answer and not as they acknowledged a topic I had covered in detail earlier. That's right, I said you. That is what extreme ownership is all about. If you don't understand or believe in the decisions coming down from your leadership, it is up to you to ask questions until you understand how and why those decisions are being made. Not knowing the why prohibits you from believing in the mission. When you are in a leadership position, that is a recipe for failure and it is unacceptable. As a leader, you must believe. But the boss should have explained this to us, right? One manager asked. Absolutely. I explained that to her. And sure enough, she came down here and did just that. But she's not a mind reader. The CEO can't predict what you won't get or understand. She's not perfect. None of us are. Things are going to slip through the cracks from time to time. It happens. I made all kinds of mistakes when I led SEALs. Often my subordinate leadership would pick up the slack for me. And they wouldn't hold it against me. Nor did I think they were infringing on my leadership turf. On the contrary, I would thank them for covering for me. Leadership isn't one person leading a team. It's a group of leaders working together up and down the chain of command to lead. If you are on your own, I don't care how good you are, you won't be able to handle it. So we let the boss down when we didn't ask questions and communicate with her, said one of the quieter managers in the back of the room. Yes, you did, I confirmed. People talk about leadership requiring courage. This is exactly one of those situations. You hear that? It takes courage to go to the CEO's office, knock on her door, explain that you don't understand the strategy behind her decisions. You might feel stupid, but you will feel far worse trying to explain to your team a mission or strategy that you don't understand or believe in yourself. And as you pointed out, you are letting the boss down because she will never know that her guidance is not promulgated properly through the ranks. If you don't ask questions so you can understand and believe in the mission, you are failing as a leader and you are failing your team. So if you ever get a task or guidance or a mission that you don't believe in, don't just sit back and accept it. Ask questions until you understand why so you can believe in it, so you can believe in what you are doing and you can pass that information down to the chain to your team with confidence so they can get out and execute the mission. That is leadership. Chapter four. Hold on here. A lot of talk in the day. At a three-hour Zoom meeting, mastermind thing was really good. It was a lot of talking. A lot of sitting. I got more to do after this, too. I see a little water, a little smoky smoke. Back to the foot. Back to the book. Chapter four, check the ego. Camp Corregidor, Ramadi, Iraq. Welcome to Ramadi. 
Enemy tracer rounds were zipping overhead as I raced up the stairs to the third story rooftop of our tactical operations center building, TOC, T-O-C. Our camp was under attack. I hadn't even had time to fasten my body armor. When the shooting started, I grabbed my helmet and rifle, slung my load-bearing equipment over my shoulders, and headed for the roof. Seals were arriving by the dozen, some in flip-flops with only shorts and t-shirts under their body armor, but helmets on and weapons at the ready. Just across the river in the darkness, enemy fighters had unleashed heavy volleys of machine gun fire on two separate U.S. outposts, and the American soldiers were returning fire with a vengeance. The bright glow of tracer fire was evident in both directions. Another group of enemy fighters had engaged our camp and were hamming hammering our TOC building with gunfire from the far bank of the Euphrates River. But they hadn't counted on our response. Within minutes, every Navy SEAL and task unit bruiser and several of our non-SEAL support personnel were on the rooftop shooting back. Some of the SEALs had brought their M4 rifles, others M79-40 grenade launchers, and others MK-48 and MK-46 belt-fed machine guns. We unleashed incredible volleys of fire back at the enemy fighter's muzzle flashes. I directed an M79 gunner to put some 40-millimeter illumination rounds up so we could better identify our targets. Leif was on the rooftop right next to me, shooting and directing fire. The SEAL just beside him unloaded two full 100-round belts through his machine gun, spewing spent shell casings across the rooftop that bounced with a metallic clink. Everybody was shooting, having a hell of a time. There was much there was much laughter as guns unloaded that was clearly a ridiculous amount of gunfire at the enemy. Soon the enemy fighters were either dead or retreating and their t- attack subsided. The SEAL machine gunner looked around with a smile. This is my third deployment in, in Iraq, said the SEAL machine gunner excitedly, and that's the first time I've ever fired my machine gun in combat. It was his first day on the ground in Ramadi. A few of us have been here for a week, including Leith, some of the other key leaders, and me, but most of Task Unit Bruiser's SEALs had arrived only that day. As much fun as we had shooting from the rooftop, this was a wake-up call for everyone in Task Unit Bruiser. This was Ramadi, a total war zone and the most violent place in Iraq. For those of us who had deployed to Iraq previously, it was a realization that this time would be different and a lot more dangerous. Welcome to Ramadi. Throughout 2005 and 2006, the vast and volatile Al-Anbar province was the most dangerous place in Iraq, accounting for the majority of U.S. casualties in Operation Iraqi Freedom. Of all the places in Anbar, the city of Ar-Ramadi was the most deadly. Located on the Euphrates River, Ramadi, with 400,000 residents, was the capital of Anbar province and the epicenter of a violent Sunni insurgency. The city was strewn with rubble pile buildings, burned out hulks of twisted metal that had once been vehicles and walls marred by bullet holes. Giant bomb craters from IEDs dotted the main roads throughout town. Thousands of heavily armed Sunni insurgent fighters loyal to al-Qaeda in Iraq controlled some two-thirds of the geographical area of the city. U.S. forces couldn't even begin to penetrate these areas without sustaining massive casualties. Al-Qaeda in Iraq claimed the city as capital of their caliphate. Valiant U.S. Army soldiers and Marines ran convoys and patrols through the deadly, heavily IED'd roads. They conducted cordon and search operations into enemy territory and engaged in fierce fighting. Most of the several thousand U.S. troops in Ramadi were located on large, secure bases outside the city itself. 
but along the main road through the city, a string of isolated U.S. Marine and Army outposts were constantly under attack. The level of determination and sophistication from insurgent fighters and Ramadi was alarming, far beyond what any of us in Task Unit Bruiser had seen on previous deployments. Several times a week, a group of 20 or 30 well-armed fighters launched hellacious attacks on U.S. forces. These were well-coordinated, complex attacks executed simultaneously on multiple U.S. outposts separated by several kilometers. They were hardcore mouge. Many enemy attacks followed a similar pattern. Each began with a sudden barrage of accurate, devastating machine gun fire from multiple directions, which hammered the American sentry posts and forced them, those on guard to take cover. Then, while soldiers and Marines were hunkered down, deadly RPG-7 shoulder fire rockets were launched in rapid succession, impacting with violent noise and lethal shrapnel. Next, mortars fired for some distance away, rained down inside the walls of the coalition compound, often impacting with alarming accuracy. All this was done in an effort to take out the sentries or force them to keep their heads down long enough so they couldn't return fire while the enemy launched their final and most devastating weapon. The VBIED suicide bomber driving a large truck or vehicle filled with several thousand pounds of explosives. I don't know how to say that. VBIED? I don't know. Just shooting from up there. If the truck made it past the concrete barriers, past the Marine or Army sentries that would engage them, and inside the compound, the results would be catastrophic. As deadly as the most powerful U.S. Tomcat missile launched from a Navy warship or Joint Directive Attack Munition guided bomb dropped from U.S. aircraft. These enemy attacks were well-coordinated and viciously executed. Sunni jihadi militants were far more capable than those I had previously seen in Iraq two years before and eager to wipe out American outposts, leaving dozens of Marines or soldiers dead and many more wounded. But those fearless Marines and Army sentries held their ground every time and beat the insurgents back. Instead of taking over, taking cover to save themselves, the young Marines and soldiers who manned the watchtower and sentry posts courageously stood fast and returned fire with deadly accurate machine gun fire of their own. Their selfless stands were almost, almost always prevented those V-bids from entering their way into the compound. The V-bed might explode in a massive fireball and concussion, but the enemy could not get close enough to U.S. forces protected behind sandbags and concrete barriers. The Marines and soldiers fought off those attacks with such frequency that they almost became commonplace, just another day in Ramadi. In Task Unit Bruiser, we were confident, perhaps even a little cocky, but I tried to temper that confidence by instilling a culture within our task unit to never be satisfied. We pushed ourselves harder to continuously improve our performance. I reminded our troops that we couldn't take the enemy for granted, that we could never get complacent. With all that in mind, the boys of Task Unit Bruiser were fired up and eager to prove themselves as we deployed to our Ramadi in the spring of 2006. Immediately upon arrival, we were humbled by the violence of the battlefield and the incredible heroism heroism of conventional u.s soldiers and marines in the second brigade combat team 28th infantry division our seals had the benefit of much more advanced training in all the finest weapons lasers optics and gadgetry that the enormous special operations command budget could buy but we were in awe of the soldiers and marines who manned the outposts in enemy territory and were daily locked in a deadly struggle against a fierce and determined enemy 
when the first armored division's ready first brigade combat team arrived to replace the 228 a month into our deployment again we developed a deep respect and admiration for those brothers in arms and we're proud to serve alongside them every one of the conventional units we worked with had seen extensive combat had lost troops and suffered many more wounded these soldiers and marines were the real deal they epitomized the term warrior the enemy was also strong and incredibly capable. They were deadly and efficient, always watching, analyzing, and looking for weaknesses to exploit. If U.S. forces were to win in Ramadi, I saw right away that all of us, U.S. conventional army and marine units and special operation units like our SEALs and task unit bruiser, had to work together and support each other. Unfortunately, there were a small number of U.S. Special, for, uh, special Operation Units, including some SEALs, who viewed themselves as the cut above the regular U.S. Army soldiers and Marines and would only operate independently. That cockiness produced some conventional Army and Marine command, commanders who didn't like Special Operations Units. But if U.S. forces were to win this difficult fight here in Ramadi, we would all need to check our egos and work together. From our earliest arrival, we established a precedent that task unit bruiser, we would we would treat our army and Marine brothers and sisters in arms with nothing but the highest professional respect and courtesy. SEAL units are sometimes known for long hair and sloppy uniforms, but to conventional units, appearance was a measure of professionalism. And task unit bruiser, I insisted that our uniforms be squared away in our haircuts military regulation. We sought ways to work together with these units in support of one another. The goal was simple, secure and stabilize Ramadi. With this attitude of humility and mutual respect, we forged strong relationships with the Army and Marine battalions and companies that owned the battle space in and around Ramadi. We took great risks to patrol deep into enemy territory to provide sniper support and protect friendly troops in the streets. Those soldiers and Marines constantly put their troops at risk to come help us with heavy fire support m1a2 abram tanks and m2 bradley fighting vehicles and casualty evacuations when we needed it after a month on the ground to ramadi task unit bruiser had made a mark we had figured out how to position ourselves on the high ground where we could do the most damage to enemy fighters and best support the u.s army and marine units operating in the city when when the enemy rallied to attack sneals SEAL snipers sprung into action and engaged with precision sniper fire, killing large numbers of well-armed Moosh fighters and routing their attacks. As enemy activity escalated, so did SEAL aggression. Once our SEAL elements were discovered, our positions transitioned from clandestine sniper hide sites into fortified fighting positions. SEAL machine gunners joined in the fight, hammering enemy fighters with hundreds of rounds from their belt-fed machine guns. Other SEALs lobbed 40-millimeter high-explosive grenades and launched our own shoulder-fire rockets at the enemy. Rapidly, the number of enemy fighters killed at the hands of our task unit bruiser SEALs grew to unprecedented levels. Every bad guy killed meant more U.S. soldiers, Marines, and SEALs survived another day. They were one day closer returning, returning home safely to their families. Every enemy fighter killed also meant another Iraqi soldier, policeman, or government official survived, and more Iraqi civilians lived in less fear of al-Qaeda in Iraq and their insurgent allies. We fought an enemy, an evil enemy, perhaps as evil as any the U.S. military had faced in long history. 
These violent jihadis use torture, rape, and murder as weapons to ruthlessly terror, terrorize, intimidate, and rule over the civilian populace who lived in abject fear. The American public, as much as the Western world, lived in willful naivete of the barbaric, unspeakable tactics these jihadis employed. It was subhuman savagery, having witnessed this repeatedly in our minds and those of people who suffered under their brutal reign, the Muj deserved no mercy. For our relatively small group of about 36 SEALs, the number of enemy fighters killed on a daily basis drew attention from the upper echelon of our chain of command. As task unit bruiser continued to operate with awesome lethality, some other units across Iraq wanted in on the action in Ramadi. One particular group of advisors from another part of Iraq had similar capability to our SEALs in Ramadi and worked alongside a well-trained Iraqi army unit. Unlike most Iraqi soldiers, these troops were equipped with good gear, including some of the best rifles, scopes, lasers, night vision goggles, and body armor in Iraq. With the right training and the right equipment, these Iraqi soldiers' skill level and operation capabilities far exceeded any of the other Iraqi units we worked with in Ramadi. Because of their superior training and high level of visibility within U.S. top military brass, this Iraqi unit and their U.S. advisors had a great deal of leeway to operate wherever and however they wanted. When they got wind of the action in Ramadi, they quickly gained approval to move there and get to work. Go to where the problem is, right? Just like right now? What is the problem? Go there. When the new unit arrived, they were sent to Camp Corregidor Ford Operating Base on the eastern side of the city. Camp Corregidor was owned and operated by the U.S. Army 101st Airborne Division, 1st Battalion, 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment, the legendary 506 made famous by Stephen Ambrose's book, The Band of Brothers, which became an HBO miniseries. The book followed a single company's heroic efforts in the European campaign against Nazi Germany in World War II. Those brave men had set a high standard, and the modern-day soldiers of the First um, and 506 carried on that tradition with pride and added to their historic legacy. The First and 506 Battalion was commanded by U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel, an extremely smart, charismatic, and professional officer who set the standard for military leaders. He was one of the finest battlefield commanders with whom I had the honor to serve. The colonel commanded with subtle intensity that was complemented with a genuinely kind and easygoing attitude. He was an incredible leader, and leading men in a violent battle in Ramadi demanded every ounce of leadership possible. Camp Corregidor was combat living defined. Everything was difficult there. A fine powder-like sand, which U.S. troops called moon dust, cake buildings, equipment, weapons, vehicles, clothing, and skin. But that was the least of the problems. Camp Corregidor bordered one of the most dangerous areas of Ramadi, called the Malab District. The camp was under constant attack from mortars, machine guns, and rockets. The colonel expected the highest level of discipline from the 501st and 506 soldiers he knew. That slacking here, even when just going to chow hall for lunch, could result in horrific wounds and death. Discipline in such a situation started with the little things, high and tight haircuts, a clean shave every day, and uniforms maintained. The more important things fell into place, body armor and helmets worn outdoors at all times, and weapons clean and ready for use at a moment's notice. Discipline created vigilance and operational readiness, which translated to high performance and success on the battlefield. Do you think that would apply to you right now in our current coronavirus situation shutdown? 
Do you feel that's true about your business, your personal life? Back to the book. We sent task unit bruiser SEALs from Delta Platoon to live and work out of Camp Corregidor to train and combat advise Iraqi soldiers there and support the first 506 band of brothers. When the SEAL element arrived, they humbly took on the same habits as their hosts. Despite more relaxed grooming standards SEALs typically enjoy elsewhere, the SEALs at Camp Corregidor cropped their hair short, shaved every day, and even donned the same ACU, Army Combat Uniform, camouflage as their Army counterparts. This overt sign of camaraderie endeared the SEALs to the soldiers of the 1st and 506. These soldiers had been in bloody fight for nearly six months, and the SEALs treated them with professionalism and respect. The Army returned that respect, and a bond quickly formed between soldiers and SEALs. Our SEALs have been working at a Camp Corregidor for several weeks, carrying out dangerous operations with courage, skill, and effectiveness when the new unit arrived. At first, the SEAL platoon commander at Camp Corregidor was concerned at the arrival of a new, well-trained Iraqi unit and their American advisors. He called me on the field expedient telephone and confided, this unit just arrived, likely has a much better capability than us. They have a lot of experience. Their Iraqi skill levels far and above our conventional jundis. They have much better gear and good weapons, and their Iraqis even have a sniper capability. I replied, that's good. I'm glad there are Iraqi soldiers that have progressed that far. If you show them the ropes and get them familiar with the battle space, they will be a great asset. I don't know, the SEAL platoon commander replied. I'm worried these guys will be better than us and take over our mission. Maybe I should just let them figure it out on their own, he said. I quickly realized what was going on. As good as this platoon commander was, his ego was being threatened. In an environment like Ramadi, trying to figure things out for yourself could easily get you killed. This was no place for ego. No, don't even think about that. Listen, the enemy is outside the wire, I told my SEAL platoon commander bluntly. Our enemies were the insurgents lurking in the city of Ramadi, not other coalition forces inside the wire, on the U.S. bases with us. We all had to work together toward the same goal of defeating the insurgency. We couldn't let ego get in the way. I continued, this new advisor unit, these are Americans and good Iraqis, possibly the best Iraqis. You do whatever you can to help these guys. If they outperform your team and take your mission, good. We will find you another one. Our mission is to defeat this insurgency. We can't let our egos take precedence over what is best to accomplish that. Got it, boss, said the platoon commander. A smart and humble warrior, he quickly recognized his viewpoint was wrong and changed his attitude. It was immaterial which units did what and who conducted the most operations. It was about the mission and how we could best accomplish it and when. The platoon commander and his element of SEALs had been bravely fighting hard. They had been in dozens of firefights in the few weeks, and they had been at Corregidor and could use all the help they can get from another capable unit. While the SEAL platoon commander quickly put his ego in check, unfortunately there were other egos getting in the way. As the new unit began to interact with the SEALs and the 1st and 506 personnel, some of their attitudes raised eyebrows. A few of them did not carry themselves with the same humility as the band of brothers, 1st 506 soldiers, and our SEALs did on Camp Corregidor. A handful of troops from the new unit flaunted an undisciplined appearance. Some had mustaches and goatees with long hair. Some wore dirty baseball caps and cut-off T-shirts with mismatched uniforms. Now, some military units on remote, isolated bases might ease their grooming standards in order to fit in with the local populace or with the foreign military units they are working with. In some cases, such an appearance might even be required. 
But here in Ramadi, in close proximity with conventional forces on bases owned and operated by the Army and Marine Corps, this was bound to cause friction. In the minds of some of the members of this new unit, they were above conforming to the colonel's strict grooming policies. But that alone was an issue that could be overcome. After all, a clean uniform does not a good soldier make. But the problems didn't stop there. Some of the unit's U.S. advisors did not address the first 506 soldier with professionalism and respect. They talked down not only to rank soldiers, but also to senior leaders. Considering virtually every rifleman in the 1st and 506 had more combat experience than most of the men this unit ever would, this was especially shocking. I get this all the time from people who have done nothing or done three things. I just I don't even say anything anymore. I just look at them and just give them a fucking dumbfounded look. Right. Back to the book. To make matters worse, the new unit made it clear that they had little interest in listening to advice or learning from the SEAL platoon commander and his men. After weeks of sustained combat operations in one of the worst sectors of Ramadi, our SEALs had learned lessons that saved lives. From specific gear needed to how much ammunition to carry to the amount of water needed for missions to effective tactics and communication plans, the SEALs had learned a great deal about conducting operations with the 1st and 506 in this specific area. When they attempted to pass this valuable information on to the new unit, their advice was shunned. Overconfidence was risky in such hostile environment, a mistake most often made by warriors who had never truly been tested. Because of the thousands of well-armed insurgents and extreme violence that engulfed Ramadi, every U.S. unit had to, be, had to carefully coordinate plans and be ready to support each other. Here, the constant threat from a large-scale enemy attack with the potential to overwhelm and annihilate a small group of U.S. troops was very real. That meant everyone had to share operational details of plans as much as they could in order to ensure synchronized efforts. From large battalion-sized operations to simple logistics convoys, it was essential to coordinate and keep other units informed in order to give everyone the greatest chance of survival and prevent fratricide. Yet, when planning their missions, this new unit work, working in the first 506 battle space refused to disclose their plans, locations, timelines, or other operational details. They didn't think they needed to inform the colonel of their plans. This meant they intended to go out into the colonel's battle space among his units, rely on his support when things went sideways, and conduct operations without fully coordinating. When the 1st 506 Battalion Operations Officer confronted them and asked for a plan detailing their first mission, the new unit's leader told him, we'll tell you later on a need-to-know basis. When the 1st 506 Tactical Operations Center, TOC, T-O-C, inquired about the unit's specific planned location for a mission, a standard practice to prevent friendly fire units operating in the area from accidentally engaging them and enabling the 1st 506 TOC to send help to their location when needed, the unit's leader provided a four-digit grid from the military grid reference system. This meant that the unit's troops could be located anywhere within a 1,000-meter grid square, all but worthless to the 501st, or 506 TOC. Earlier, we had learned some tough lessons in information sharing, or lack thereof, that had resulted in fratricide. In such a dangerous operating environment with large numbers of well-armed enemy fighters and multiple friendly units maneuvering in the same battle space, such a lack of coordination could well mean a death sentence. The SEAL platoon commander soon reported back to me on the friction between the new unit and the first 506 soldiers. My advice was simple. Give them what they need and try to help them if you can, but it sounds like they will make their own bed. 
Unfortunately, the platoon commander was not able to help the situation, and the situation did not improve. In less than two weeks, the colonel directed the unit to leave Camp Corregidor. With such impressive operation, operational capability, they should have been a big contributor to the fight. But the colonel and his troops simply could not risk working with a group where some members' egos prevented them from ever fully integrating with the 1st 506 Battalion. As a result, the unit had to watch the historic Battle of Ramadi from afar as Delta Platoon SEALs and the 1st and 506 soldiers took the fight to the enemy of the Malab, killing scores of insurgents and helping to accomplish the strategic objectives of securing and stabilizing the city. I see a lot of that on TV right now and on Facebook. You know, I don't know. Maybe you went to some shitty college. Maybe you've done something. Maybe you read a a newspaper article, but then you get on and you know everything and nobody could persuade you otherwise. And it's also everybody else's fault. That's why we're doing this book, by the way. (sighs) Moral panic leads to moral failure. And you're doing it with all of us. Not just yourself. What are we at? 124. We're going 35 more minutes. Why not? That might be it for today, though. Too much talking. Back to the book. Principle. Ego clouds and disrupts everything. The planning process, the ability to take good advice, and the ability to accept constructive criticism. It can even stifle someone's sense of self-preservation. Often, the most difficult ego to go is with your own. God, I know this. I even start to think like a man until 33. Back to the book. Everyone has an ego. Ego drives the most successful people in life, in the SEAL teams, in the military, in the business world. They want to win to be the best. That is good. But when ego clouds our judgment and prevents us from seeing the world as it is, then ego becomes destructive. When personal agendas become more important than the team and the overreaching mission success, performance suffers and failure ensues. Many of the disruptive issues that arise within any team can be attributed directly to a problem with ego. Implementing extreme ownership requires checking your ego and operating with a high degree of humility. Admitting mistakes, taking ownership, and developing a plan to overcome challenges are integral to any successful team. Ego can prevent a leader from conducting an honest, realistic assessment of his or her own performance and the performance of the team. In the SEAL teams, we strive to be confident, but not cocky. We take tremendous pride in the history and legacy of our organization. We are confident in our skills and are eager to take on challenging missions that others cannot or aren't willing to execute. But we can't ever think we are too good to fail or that our enemies are not capable, deadly, and eager to exploit our weaknesses. We must never get complacent, even now under duress, folks. That's not in the book. This is where controlling the ego is most important. Application to business. Leif Babin. I got immediate fire that that's causing us a big issue. I need some help with this, said the voicemail. Please give me a call as soon as you can. Voicemail was from Gary, a mid-level manager in the operations department of a corporation of which Jocko and I had worked through our company, Echelon Front. We had developed a 12-month leadership program for the corporation. Every few weeks, we traveled to their corporate headquarters for training with a class of a dozen mid-level managers from various departments. In addition to the classroom sessions, we provided coaching and mentorship to help our 
our course participants apply what they had learned in class and uh, what they learned in class, their everyday leadership challenges. Jocko and I had spoke to Gary by phone several times over the past few months and helped him solve some minor leadership dilemmas and build a more effective team. He was a hard worker, dedicated to his job and his team, and he was eager to learn. It was rewarding to watch him grow as a leader over the months of our course. As a result, he had much greater confidence in himself to make the decisions that would help his team more effectively execute their mission. Now he had a major issue, a serious leadership challenge that was pressing. I was eager to help. I quickly gave him a call to find out what happened and what I could do. How you doing, Gary? I asked when he picked up the phone. Not too good, Gary responded. We just had a major issue with one of our critical projects. What happened, I asked. I couldn't hope to match Gary's expertise in this industry, but I could help him solve his leadership challenges, improve communication, and run a more effective team. Our drilling superintendent made a call on his own to swap out a critical piece of equipment, said Gary. He totally violated our standard operating procedures. I have told him before how I wanted this done, and he completely blew me off. Gary was angry. Obviously, Gary's ego had been bruised by the fact that the drilling superintendent hadn't cleared a decision through him. This was something he knew he should not have run. He should have run through me, and he blatantly did not. He made the wrong call and set that set our completion date back several days, costing our company serious capital. In this industry, each day lost on a project could cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Tell me about your superintendent, I asked. Why do you think he would do that? No idea, said Gary. He knows he has to run that call through me, but he's been in this business way longer than I have, and he's got a ton of experience. Sometimes he looks at me and his face says, what the hell do you know? I'm sure he thinks he knows better than me. Perhaps he's just pushing the envelope to see what he can get away with, I replied, which can, ex- which can escalate if you let it go. That's part of the problem I'm worried about. He will respond to my critique. With his years of knowledge and experience, he's a criti- uh, critical member of this team. We can't afford to lose him. If I call him out, he is going to blow up at me, and the friction between us is likely to get even worse than it already is. And you know the climate in this industry. With his experience, he can find another job tomorrow if he wants to. That means you have to check your ego in order to have a constructive discussion with them and get this under control, I responded. Let me think this through, I continued. Do you think he deliberately tried to shut down drilling operations and cost the company money? No, admitted Gary. I'm sure he thought he was just doing what was best for the immediate situation as it presented itself. At the tactical level on the front lines where the guys in the field execute the mission, I said, it's critical that the troops grasp how they... What they do connects to the bigger picture. Your superintendent may not have really understood how his failure to follow procedure and get approval for these changes would result in hundreds of thousands of dollars lost. Do you think it's possible? Definitely. He has an exceptional hands-on knowledge of drilling, but he doesn't really deal with the big picture, Gary replied. His anger subsided and his bruised ego diminished as he realized the superintendents had probably not willfully been insubordinate. He now began to understand the reasons superintendent made the decision he made. As a leader, it's up to you to explain the bigger picture to him and to all your frontline leaders. That is a critical component of leadership, I replied. But Gary was still concerned about how to deal with his drilling superintendent and the superintendent's ego. How can I communicate this to him without ruffling his feathers and getting him all pissed off at me? If I confront him about this, our communication will get even worse than it already is. That is another Critical component of leadership, I quickly replied. Dealing with people's egos. 
And you can do so by using one of the main principles we have taught you during our course, extreme ownership. Gary responded, ownership of what? He's the one that screwed this up, not me. (laughs) It was clear Gary's ego was getting in the way of the solution of the problem. Ownership of everything, I answered. This isn't his fault. It's yours. You are in charge. So the fact that he didn't follow procedure is your fault. And you have to believe that because it's true. When you talk to him, you need to start the conversation like this. Our team made a mistake and it's my fault. It's my fault because I obviously wasn't as clear as I should have been in explaining why we have these procedures in place and how not following them can cost the company hundreds of thousands of dollars. You are extremely skilled and knowledgeable superintendent. You know more about this business than I ever will. It was up to me to make sure you know the parameters we have to work within and why some decisions have got to be run through me. Now I need to fix this so it doesn't happen again. Do you think it'll work? Asked Gary, sounding unconvinced. I'm confident it will. If you approach it as he did something wrong and he needs to fix something and he is at fault, it becomes a clash of egos and you two will be at odds. That's human nature. But if you put your own ego in check, meaning you take the blame, that will allow him to actually see the problem without his vision clouded by ego. Then you can both make sure that your team's standard operating procedures, when to communicate, what it is and isn't within his decision-making authority are clearly understood. I wouldn't have thought to take that tack, Gary admitted. It's counterintuitive, I said. It's natural for anyone in a leadership position to blame subordinate leaders and direct reports when something goes wrong. Our egos don't like to take blame, but it's on us as leaders to see where we fail to communicate effectively and help our troops clearly understand what their roles and responsibilities are and how their actions impact the bigger strategic picture. Remember, it's not about you, I continued. It's not about the drilling superintendent. It's about the mission and how best to accomplish it. With that attitude exemplified in you and your key leaders, your team will dominate. And actually I lied. I think I'm going to stop there. Hour and 33 minutes. Like I can feel the back. I just talked too much today. That's a weird thing to say, especially since I'm non-essential and I'm shut down. But of course, leave it to me to find a way to run my mouth even longer. We got the, um, this will be up. You might hear this before, but we got the Renegade Detroit Ask Me Anything. Gonna that's tonight, six thirty to seven thirty. Bring your questions. We're gonna be on Facebook Live. I will go and post the link. I'm gonna be doing this on Facebook, but I will post the link in the event on Facebook, in the Renegade group, and in the Metro group. So how you guys doing? You handling everything all right? You getting your shit together? Do you have a plan? I have a plan. It's a very flexible plan, but put together a plan. I don't think a lot of people are taking this as um, vacation and time off. And I do think we should find the good in anything and everything, right? But kind of like an extreme ownership, how they're always training and preparing. And there are things you could be doing right now, right? Like uh, maybe I'm not such a fat bastard anymore. I'm working on it, but maybe you are and you need to start. You know, go do that. Maybe your business is non-essential and you have one stream of income and you, I never saw this coming. It never occurred to me that we would ever shut down the American economy, but it looks like we might. Several states have, and maybe we will as a nation. And maybe you only have one stream of income. Ooh, man, better to start now, right? Better to start now. Whatever the bad news is, 
Find the problem, start working on it. Find the problem, start working on it. All right, folks, man, you got this. You fucking got this. You're a bunch of savage motherfuckers, man. You got this. We all have moments of doubt, but let that too pass and believe and have confidence in your ability to figure shit out. All right, folks. Hey, if you like the podcast, hook a brother up. There's several things you can do that really help out. Rate and review on iTunes. That's the easiest way, especially if you don't have money or you're not in real estate at all. If you enjoy it, that really helps because then people find me and they listen to more of the content. We can help more people and, you know, my 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 audience grows, which is part of one of my goals, right? You can um, also just share the podcast on social media with others, right? You can hire me to list and sell your house for top dollar, one of the people from my team. And don't forget, we don't just do investment stuff. I'm getting sick of that, man. Investors make better real estate agents for retail buyers and retail sellers, not worse, better. You know, hire a professional, hire someone with business to business. You can refer some sellers and buyers to me. Or if you got a wholesale deal, send it to me, uh, send it my way, and maybe we can find a buyer for it. All right. Um, once we can attend any of the local meetings, or if you just want to check out our website, go to renegadedetroit.com, meetup.com forward slash renegadedetroitinvestors, or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. That's the important one for tonight. You can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. Of course, you can always reach out, 313-600-2133. And shout out to my boy, Joe Randall, mortgagesbyjoerandall.com. Conventional lender, FHA, VA, conventional, all that stuff. He can get you taken care of. He is loved by the Metro Detroit Real Estate Investors Group and many at RDI. And if you like all the new stereo equipment and all the shit you can hear and all the new formats. It's because he went out and spent a ton of money so we can have all that new stuff. So at least reach out, say hi, give him a shot too. A lot of people really like him. All right. As I wrap up this podcast, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to steps you need to become financially independent. Wouldn't that feel good right about now? Tell me it wouldn't. Oh, you'd be basking like a fat fucking seal or walrus in the sun with no fucks given, just laying on a beach. But not yet. I know there are distractions, mistakes, poisonous people, bad habits may prevent you from starting or continuing with your goals. Stick with it. Don't give up. Pick something and do it every day. One step. One step closer. All right, folks. As always, I appreciate your attention. Until the next podcast, crush it. <laughs>